context from today, um, we see the aftermath of Cain having been banished from the lands east of Eden. He takes a wife to the Hegeshi, has children, and builds a city, which we can assume to be the setting of all that takes place hereafter. We then get a very short genealogy of some of Cain's line, ending with a description of the kind of people who live in the city that Cain has built. And we also get this strange poem of sorts on the part of Lamech. Lamech has killed someone, apparently in self-defense, and claims to his wives that his killing is justified because of the blessing that God places upon his ancestor, Cain. Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. Lamech states that if Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech is avenged seventy-sevenfold. So it's clear to me, upon reading through this passage several times, that it details the way in which Cain's further exile from the presence of the Lord is having a direct effect on his descendants. And one of the first things that jumps out to me as I began to read this is the fact that Cain built a city. In every translation that I've looked through, Cain is described as having built a city, not a village, not a town, not merely a municipality, but a full-fledged city, a place that is more or less self-governed, has its own laws, cultures, and is inhabited by a specific kind of people. We know through our own vernacular some of the distinctions that being from a city can place upon a person. For instance, we make distinctions between people from the city and people from the country. We know that a person who grew up or lives in the suburbs is likely to be somewhat set apart from a person who grew up in the city proper. We know as well that persons who inhabit large city tends to be products of that city. And in extreme cases, no matter what they do or where these persons go, they continue to bear the marks of belonging to the place where they are from. Someone who lives in a port city, for instance, will likely retain marks on their character that are reminiscent of such a place. These marks may include a love of the sea, a love of fish, of salty air, or of sailing. Whereas someone from a city nestled in the mountains may retain a deep abiding love for walking out in nature, for hiking through the mountains, for hunting, skiing, and have a taste for the particular wildlife of that area. A city is a kind of place that has the power to mark its inhabitants with aspects of its particular culture. What then is the culture of this city that Cain has built? To try and find out, let's look at the kind of people this city produced. The sons of Lamech are described as the fathers of specific kinds of people, shepherds, entertainers, and metal workers. And though we're, we're not given quite enough context in just this passage to ascertain the values of these peoples, we can look to the behavior of their successors as they occur throughout the rest of the Bible in our own world today to give us a few hints. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. When I think of metal workers, I cannot help but be reminded of Demetrius from Acts chapter 19, a silversmith and someone who literally made idols, who in fear of his livelihood being disrupted, gathered together those of similar craft and started a riot because of the Christians who were preaching another god besides those created by human hands. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Now those who keep livestock have had a, uh, a dubious relationship with God over the years. It is from the work of their hands we know that offerings were made in the temples. At the same time, though, we know that people have been guilty of being overly attached to the significance of their cattle. This is evidenced by the Israelites in the book of Exodus, who, when Moses had departed from them for a time, readily chose an image of a calf to be the object of their worship, and, with the help of the metal workers present, constructed one made of gold. His brother's name was Jubal, 
and he was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. This one calls for a bit more of a modern example, albeit one that has endured throughout the ages. I've always wondered at the copious amounts of attention that we so readily lavish upon performers in our day and age. Actors, singers, and even athletes of all kinds are followed religiously by the masses. They are reported on by news outlets as though their everyday doings were of tantamount importance for us as we go about our lives. Some cultures even go so far as to refer to their singers or groups of singers directly and unashamedly as idols. That's the connecting thread between these descendants of Cain. They all have some connection to idolatry. Now that in itself may not be a straightforward condemnation of the city. After all, one can make an idol out of anything. So we still need some, some more evidence. We've already, we've already taken a look at the kinds of people who we know to be here. So another place we might look then is in the absence of certain other people. It is conspicuous to me that in the city of Cain there are no farmers. When God created Adam, he charged him with tending to the flock, tending to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve are exiled from the garden, God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. In recompense for his sin, Adam will have to work much harder now to produce food from the ground. Likewise, when Cain is exiled from the land near Eden, God proclaims, Now you are cursed from the ground. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. As a result of Cain's murderous anger, he and apparently his descendants are no longer able to make the ground yield forth its fruit. This would explain why there are no farmers in the city of Enoch. They are cursed from the ground. I, I want to make an interesting note here before we move on. It seems as we've progressed here through not only this passage but through Genesis as a whole that the subsequent sin of man has up to this point been drawing him further and further away from the blessings of God. First, we could no longer dwell in the garden and had to endure the, the hardships of life. We had to work much, much harder, as we said, to yield forth the fruit of the land, and we had to now bear the pain of childbirth as we produce children. And then further sin on the part of Cain caused men to be separated completely from the ground, separated from that of which we are made. Anyway, thinking about the kinds of people farmers are may help to give us some insights on what may be missing from the city of Cain. Farmers are intimately connected with God's creation. They're intimately connected with God's creation. They work with and for the land, cultivating it and helping it to yield fruit. Of necessity, they are patient. They cannot force the ground to give its nutrients any slower or any faster than it must to produce crops. They must wait for the rain to abate before planting or plowing, nor can the fruit of their work be harvested before its time. They must reap in due season. Farmers are also more likely to have a right understanding of their place in creation. They know that they are dependent on many outside factors to help them in their work, to produce their livelihood, to, to continue living in the way that they have. They are subject to the sometimes fickle patterns of the weather. Their crops may become diseased, seeds may fail, unexpected pests may invade. For these reasons and more, farmers are almost instinctively drawn to prayer. After all, who would not be moved to prayer in the face of such helplessness? Only someone who is hardened of heart and refuses to give in to the will of another. These are the kinds of people that inhabits, inhabit Cain's city, those who have been cut off from the land, doomed to be separate from much of the goodness that God had in store for man, and who increasingly rely only on themselves for what they need. Farming brings us close to the earth in significant ways. 
It brings us into contact with the dust from which we came and reminds us that we may at any moment be returned to it. For this reason, perhaps more than any other, farmers are more likely to appreciate the value of life. It makes sense then that the absence of such persons in the city would help produce the kind of person that could so readily dispatch another human life. Thus far, we've been using context clues to help us determine the kind of city we find in the story. So let us now look toward some more specific evidence and draw what conclusions we may. This evidence comes in the form of Lamech. Lamech is an inhabitant of the city. He was the father of those who may have gone forward to be the creator of idols, and he was a progenitor of those who are cursed from the ground. But what kind of person was he? And what did he teach those who came after him? And how has the city that he lives in shaped his character? I'll answer the last of those questions in an attempt to answer the first two. Lamech said to his two wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. Lamech here uses God's protection of Cain as a justification for, for killing those who have wronged him. He takes advantage of the grace of God showed to Cain and twists God's blessing to serve his own needs. What kind of person can do this? Can assume that they have the right to take someone's life? Can assume that God is on their side in the midst of an abhorrent act of violence? And can then preach to those nearest to him that his actions were good and just? A prideful person, let's see. Pride, device as we know it, includes placing oneself above others, arrogance, inflexibility, among other things. Someone who tries to justify murder to his wife reeks of this in my mind. Pride is also, incidentally, one of the things that can most easily and surreptitiously tempt us to idolatry. Pride leads us to believe that our own power is superior to anyone else's. It teaches us that we need not rely on anyone else or seek their counsel. And in this way, we are more likely to believe in a God that we have found useful to us rather than the one God who created us. It's clear to me that Lamech is someone thoroughly immured in the sin of pride. But I would argue that Lamech did not end up this way on his own. All of us are, in some ways, the products of our upbringing. The culture and values of the city of Enoch have bled into Lamech and taught him how to think and consider things in the world. Nowhere is this more evident than in Lamech's decision to kill. This is the second instance of death that we see so far into Genesis. And again, it is at the hands of another human. What motivates us to kill? When we see Cain, or we see when Cain killed Abel, that he was jealous, and his jealousy bore anger, and that anger murdered. I have a suspicion, however, that there was another motivator at play in both of these stories of death. For Cain, this motive is betrayed by his jealousy. Cain wanted what Abel had, favor, recognition, love, whatever it may have been. I think part of what motivated Cain to kill Abel was a fear that he would never have those same things while Abel yet lived. Cain was afraid that no matter what he did, the pattern that he witnessed would continue to perpetuate itself, leaving him forever rejected and cast aside. And I think that it was Cain's pride that acted on this fear, the seed of which produced the fervent anger needed to commit murder. You see, fear and pride are intimately connected. Fear tells us that our pride is something that's worth protecting. For if we have not our pride, our intrinsic sense of worth and value, what do we have? What would we not do to keep from slipping into that abyss of the unknown 
wherein our power, our own power, is useless. Before exploring those questions, I, I think it's important that we take a closer look at, at this aspect of fear. Um, and kind of hone in on, on the part that it's playing in shaping Cain and the city and by proxy the next. As Paul says in his letter to Timothy, we have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. It seems then that if there is a spirit of fear and that it did not come from God, then it must have come from the evil one. When we became separated from God, it became harder to hear not only God's voice, but also the voice of Satan. When we were in the garden, it was obvious when it was a literal snake talking to us. And it was very obvious when God was there walking with us <laughs> in the garden and asking us where we were and asking who had told us that we were naked. And as we continue to draw further away from Eden through exile, the cost of sin, we lost some of the ease of differentiation between the two. After the fall, we do not see God walking with man any longer, nor do we see the serpent approach and whisper into man's ear. This does not mean, though, that they are not there. Though he was not known by his presence, Satan was there with Cain as Cain went back after offering to God the fruit of his labor. He talked with Abel. He asked Cain, Satan did, what would happen if Abel kept getting the best of him? Maybe he suggested that Abel thought that he was better than Cain and that he was laughing at the failure of Cain's offering to God. Maybe Satan suggested to Cain that the only way he would ever move up, move up in the world is if Abel were no longer in the picture. Cain gave in to that fear and in doing so succeeded in creating a further gap between God and all his line. So we see in the descendants of Cain that they too have given themselves over to fear. That's what motivated Lamech to kill the man for wounding him and the boy for striking him. He was afraid for his life. The devil continuing to whisper through yet more unseen and through more and more convoluted means, using the power of the city's culture and the values inherent to convince Lamech that he would not be safe unless he killed those who had wronged him. And even further convinced him that he was justified in doing so. So what do we do with all of this? There are, there are two pretty broad categories of questions that we might ask ourselves in response to this. The first is, what kind of city are you living in? What kind of city are you living in? Is it one of selfishness, self-gain, and self-preservation? Or is it one that remembers to worship God in response to all things? The second category is that of fear. Are you giving yourself over to fear or trusting in the power of Christ's resurrection? Let's start with first. What kind of city are you living in? The city of Lamech is one in which its inhabitants are wholly subject to the whisperings of the evil one, of Satan. In this city, it will be better to provide for yourself and protect yourself than to make any kind of sacrifice for others. In this city, one would be applauded for harming others if the result was personal gain. In this city, your ego is what's most important and gets first consideration in the decisions that you will make. In this city, it might be taught that those who come from outside of it are a danger and that its inhabitants need to be protected from the stranger. If this is the city that you found yourself in, fear not, for there is a better way. And fortunately, it need not require us to pack up and move house. In contrast to this state of affairs, toward the end of our reading tonight, we see the beginnings of another city and we see some of the values that this city embodies. Shifting perspectives 
into verse 25, we return to Adam and Eve. The two of them, unable to stop themselves from getting it on, have produced another child. <laughs> it is in Eve's response to this child, though, that we witness the building of a better city. She says, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel for Cain killed him. In this statement, Eve is doing two things. She worships God, and she bears witness to the truth. God has appointed me another offspring, she says. It would be easy, easy for Eve to, to be convinced that it was through her and Adam's own power that they had created another human being. But instead, she immediately turns any attention away from herself and gives credit for this miracle, this spontaneous eruption of another human life. She rightly gives credit for this to God, glorifying and worshiping him instead of her own deed. God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. I don't know about you, but I'd, I'd be pretty embarrassed to, to admit that one of my children had killed the other one. <laughs> I feel like it was um, a, a reflection on, on my parenting, on how I had raised my kids, that one of them just, you know. And I'd be pretty afraid of, of what people would think of me because of that. But instead of giving in to that temptation, Eve holds fast to the truth and proclaims, yes, it was by my own son that my other was killed. However, God has seen me and knows me, and in his knowledge of me, he saw fit to bless me with a replacement. I have been judged and found worthy of mercy. Eve told the truth when she could have easily have hidden it, and God had mercy on her. Truth and worship. Bearing witness to the truth and worshiping God are some of the foundations on which this new city is built. Where does the city come from? You might ask. Well, just as Cain did not build his city immediately, erecting myriad dwellings to support a populace that did not yet exist, neither do Adam and Eve. Rather, the cities that they build are found in and through their descendants. And we see the fulfillment of this new city through the prophets descending through the line of Seth and finally culminating in the preachings of Jesus Christ. Jesus tells us of a new city, the kingdom of God here on earth. He tells us that in this city, all will know God and worship him. Men will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, and never again will they learn war. All lying and deceit will be put to death, and all tears will be dried up. The city that Jesus describes for us stands in stark contrast to the one that Cain, which Cain established, the greater part of which seems to have taken hold in our societies today. Rather than justifying our sins, we are to repent of them. Rather than curse, we are to bless our enemies. Rather than seek vengeance and anger, we are to forgive. As we read, we shall not take vengeance upon ourselves, but instead go directly against the ways of Lamech, forgiving those who have wronged us, up to 77 times. At the end of this passage, we see yet another important piece of information that sets apart these two cities. And then men began to call on the name of the Lord. This sentence makes me feel like a goose just walked over my grave. <laughs> it sends shivers down my spine. Reading this here sounds as though up until now, men were not calling upon the name of the Lord. But what does that mean? Truthfully, I, I almost don't know what to make of it at all. I feel like there's so much to unpack in just that handful of words. But for now, I think that what the sentence does mark, perhaps, is one of the most important distinctions between these two cities. It seems like scripture might be telling us that it is only in this new city that men pray. So 
well, why might this be significant? What might the difference be between the people that pray and the people who do not? Prayer is one of the few gifts we have from God that allows us to commune with him directly. Just as Eve is shown mercy by God in the form of Seth, God chose his citizens mercy by leaving open a connection to him. Though we can no longer walk with him in Eden, we can still be with God in prayer. Though God cut down the tree when he banished Cain, he left a stump from which a shoot will grow and slowly but surely become his holy city. This is the city that we are invited to live in. And we can do so. We can live in the city by obeying God's commandments, thereby being shaped and transformed by the values, by the cultures of this new city until we are recognizably membered within. Jesus invites us to be members of that city set on a hill. Moving on to that final category, are you giving yourself up to a spirit of fear? Fear is one of the devil's most potent weapons. Through it, he convinces us to do and not do any number of things. He teaches us to fear financial insecurity. Be afraid. That's, the, that's what the devil sounds like in my head. Be afraid that you will not make enough money, he says. If you don't, you will be cast out of society, have no place to live, have no food to eat, and then die. Satan teaches us to fear selflessness. Don't give away your stuff or your time. You, you need it. What will you do, he says, when you are burnt out from giving of yourself and caring for others and fulfilling your responsibilities to the best of your abilities? You will not have enough time for yourself. You will, you will not have time to enjoy the things you like. You will hate your life, and you will want to die. The evil one teaches us to fear each other and even ourselves. You know, the devil says to us, that you are not a good person, that you want to do evil things, and that you ought to be punished for that desire. Therefore, you must hide yourself from others, never being honest with them. Do not open yourself and be vulnerable, else they will know you as I do and fear you and seek to kill you. Satan, the devil, the evil one, the father of lies, and our enemy <clears throat> would have you believe that death is imminent, no matter what you do, and that you must protect against it at every turn, when in reality we know the truth. Through the power of Christ's resurrection, we will not die. Not forever, as the enemy would have us believe. God, through sending us his only son to be humiliated and nailed to a tree until death and sacrificed for us, saved us from the fear of death. Therefore, we ought to strive to be citizens of God's holy city and animated by the power of the Holy Spirit. Obey God's command issued through Isaiah. And you shall not fear what these people fear, nor be in dread of it. It is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy, and he shall be your fear, and he shall be your dread. Through this, we know that God has assumed for us all our fears and all our dread. We can go forward in confidence knowing that what we have is enough because it comes from God. We don't need to obey the temptation to save and protect ourselves because God already knows our needs and promises to provide for them. Through Christ's resurrection, we know the threats of fear and death to be empty. Yet still we wake up in the morning and rather than giving God glory for the joy of just being able to see another day, we begin to worry. We worry about what we have to do, about how tired we are, about whether we'll make it through the day, about how we're going to feel tomorrow, about the stuff we've got to do tomorrow and next week and seven years from now. And that's not strange. That's not out of the ordinary at all. It would be weird to me if you told me that you weren't worried about stuff, you know? We're only humans. 
and though we strive to become sanctified, to be members as one of God's citizens. Our enemy has had uncountable days to come up with more and more varied ways to distract us and keep us continually falling prey to our fears. What then can be done? Well, there are three things that we can do. First off, we can learn and obey God's commands to us. Through reading our Bibles, we can learn how God wants us to live, and by emulating that pattern, we can learn the goodness of his will. And as we learn more and more of that goodness, we begin to be able to trust what God tells us without needing to foist the burden of proof upon God. As we learn God's goodness, we can grow in faith, faith that helps us to trust God and more easily reject the lies of Satan. Second, we can pray. We can pray to God, asking him to transform us into members of his kingdom. We can pray to God, asking for the strength to resist fear and temptation. We can learn how to practice like Leah and listen to what God has to say to us. And we can pray to God just to pray, for it is good to sit and simply be with him. And lastly, what we can do to help us remember that we are saved from the fear of death is come before this table. At this table through communion and worship, we can't help but be reminded of his sacrifice for us because we proclaim it to each other almost every week. Christ died for us while we were still sinners, and that proves that he loves us. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. So as often as you can, as you can come to this table, as often as you need <clears throat> to be reminded of God's love and to be fed and nourished, come to this table. As often as you need to be reminded that our hope is not in this world, but in the heavenly kingdom, 